0: Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Hi everyone, I am Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through the eyes of its literature. Today, I am pleased to have with me Veo Poo. Uh, Veo is uh, a professor. He teaches English at Delhi University uh, at Shahid Bhagat Singh College. Uh, However, uh, this is Veo's debut novel. Such a promising book because... To me, a lot of this book sort of helped me understand why I do this podcast, which is really to learn about Facebook, the country that I live in and call home, uh, which often escape unnoticed. So first of all, Vejo, thank you so much for doing this, writing this lovely book and sharing your time with us.
1: Thank you, Ayushi. I must appreciate your initiatives. I've listened to some of your podcasts and they are very informative. And at the same time, I mean, listeners are able to get a lot of things that uh, many of us don't know, actually. So thank you for this initiative and uh, inviting me to come over this afternoon.
0: Thank you so much. So, you actually, the first thing that I want to start, your book begins with this excerpt from Barcelona Dreamtime, which is another very important book from the Northeast. Um, and it says that, You know, I believe that stories are powerful and they have the power to transform lives, the magic to work peace. Uh, To me, this really set the tone for reading the book ahead because for one, uh, you could have as easily written a non-more academic book rather than taking a fiction angle. Uh, And also uh, because the power of stories to reshape lives and to talk about uh, lives that uh, escape unnoticed right it's something that I felt really came through uh, but I have to ask you did you uh, were you sure that you wanted to write this as fiction and not as like a non-fictional commentary uh solely
1: <laughs> yeah thank you for that question in fact let me start with the uh, you know the epigraph which you just read out uh, from Barcelona Dr- Dreamtime by Istirin kire she is, in fact, one of uh, the most uh, well-known Naga writers at the moment. And this is uh, from a very long poem which is written. And uh, the poem is really powerful. I mean, if you read uh, the rest of the poem, it tells you a lot about uh, the Naga struggle and also the kind of uh, uh, struggle which many people, groups, uh, particularly from the Northeast, have gone through over the last many decades. And, um, yeah, like you said, uh, many, I think, uh, quite a few have, Ask me similar questions, which you have asked, which is that uh, you know a lot of things seems like you know nonfiction. So there is a, a, a huge interface between facts and fiction, which is what I also intended to do. I, I uh, uh, certain levels cannot tell certain stories as they are because of the hurt, because of the kind of uh, you know wounds that people are still nursing. Um, so I had to fictionalize. Uh, many uh, many of these stories which I have, but like I mentioned in my small note uh, to the book, that um, a lot of, most of these uh, characters, in fact, are drawn from real life persons, people who have experienced uh, trauma and uh, whose memories I thought it should be something which cannot be just left behind. They should be carried forward for people to understand the present. I hope Uh, it made some sense to you
0: i i was just um you know thinking of what you said and um i was wondering right uh that by putting in a certain fictional narrative right you uh fiction i think allows you the window of opportunity to work um you know the, that whole aspect of personal magic and storytelling right otherwise you're just narrating events however um critical those may be, it is, it is honestly the humanizing of pain and struggle and trauma and conflict that really helps to you know bring that point forward in a very searing manner and and hence i absolutely uh resonate with what you just said for me um from a reader's perspective, this was a very interesting book, because uh, I knew, of course, what the book was about, in, and in I skimmed through the blurb, but, uh, but I was completely unaware of Operation Bluebird, because for obvious reasons, big chunks of our, um, uh, you know, history get removed from mainstream cognizance. There's an absolute underreporting of anything from the Northeast, which is which is a well-known fact, but still continues to persist. And a lot of these, the specific incidents of the book, which we'll come to, were, were things not known to me. And I, I was born in the mid-90s. And these things happened, you know, uh, in the 80s and the early 90s, etc. However, so something like a Khalistan movement, I've heard about. Right? You still get glimpses and shades, and it gets talked about. So it would say even be top of the mind for somebody who's in their twenties, much like I am. However, an incident like Operation Bluebird, till I did not read your book, Veo, I had no idea something like this had even happened a month, a few episodes ago, and uh, and it was is when I got to know, know that these specific series of events have happened. So what do you think of the burden, right, at times of introducing these historical events and very defining and critical events through your voice and through your hand as a writer? Because unlike a World War II or a a partition of India, right, which hundreds of people have written about thousands of times, you are writing about events, right? I'm sure in the next years, there's not going to be another book on Operation Bluebird, but there will be like, um, but there'll be like multiple articles on a Veer Savarkar and a Bhagat Singh, right? That's how the mainstream imagination works. When you have this sort of almost titular responsibility of shaping the narrative for something from an underreported region, is that a big burden? How do you deal with it? And I don't know if my question is complex, but essentially what I'm asking is that when you've taken uh, on this task of writing it's it's also as much a burden as you know a pleasure write or have you story told right as a writer is, is that what it is for you
1: yeah so i think uh, you know you raised uh, some important aspects of what i was trying to intend with the book too which is that um, yes uh, many of these narratives um, i guess because of the size of india so many things happen in different parts of country at the same time And uh, when I grew up uh, in this part of the region, which is often the periphery of the country, this 80s seems to be a very transitioning period. And a lot of things were happening. Of course, there were things that happened, you know, which were much more worse than what happened in 80s. But then again, you know, like you said, many people have not heard about the Operation Bluebird. Much also because I guess um, people did not want to talk about it for a long time. Even people from that part, you know, even my people did not want to talk about it. And I, let me just give, uh, you know, a kind of a parallel uh, thing that happened. Let, let's talk about Operation Blue Star, you know, which happened on the other end of uh, the country. The Delhi, right? Many people did not talk about it. For a long period of time, people were silently bearing, waiting for justice of sort. And uh, I find this quite a good parallel to draw, you know, one end of the spectrum, you have Operation Blue Star, and you have on the other side, Operation Bluebird, which is something that is actually, you know, a kind of enforced by the same military or parallel military uh, you know, of the state. And uh, for a long time, people did not uh, wish to talk about it because they thought that justice was coming in some way or the other. But uh, for too long, I guess they have waited. And... Um, they have waited and even given up hope. But for me, writing this, uh, you know, was in, in one way, there's a lot of risk I've taken too, because I'm talking about something which is very significant historically for uh, people group who have experienced this trauma. And at the same time, I w- wanted to talk about, because uh, unless we talk about it, uh, you know, people will not know on one part. And unless you start talking about it, there will also be no healing to the wounds that have been you know, scarred uh, because of all these incidents that happened. And so for me, I, I wanted to kind of bring in or you archive a sort of a community memory through this work. I hope that uh, even though I have fictionalized it, many of it, I suppose, like many other books would do, uh, sometimes fictions are uh, you know, better history books than actual history books that we read about. So many historical events that happen, And uh, unfortunately, because of the size of uh, country, I guess, like I mentioned earlier, and also the kind of size of population we have, we cannot care so much to know so much about other parts of the region. For me too, until I came to Delhi, I do not know so much about, uh, you know, much of what has happened in India, except for those that I read. And I think, uh, only it is only in the uh, post liberalization which is post 1990s which your generation i must say should are part of that uh, you know there is an opening uh, you know look east policy actually initiated a sense of opening up the northeast and understanding what is happening what are the problems that the region face now of course we have uh, quite a handsome amount of literature from the region and people are able to get a sense of awareness, know about the sensitivities of the thing, but still, even now, I think there is, uh, you know, a tendency to sensationalize uh, issues from the region. Uh, while I talk about this kind of uh, incidents that happened, which is unfortunate to the history of that people and the period, there are also lots of, uh, you know, mundane, let's say, uh, daily lives that I wanted to record, you know, because many of these things would be lost. Uh, For instance, uh, I wanted to draw uh, a lot of how things were before communication transportation did not, you know, go to this part of the land. You know, people had to go on food and, you know, all these transportations were not. And many of these current generations have forgotten that, you know, their parents used to toil this hard to, you know, do all that they did for their children, so that, that's one aspect of things which I also wanted to. And I hope that my readers will be able to understand and peep through some of these aspects.
0: I think so too. And, you know, uh, I mean, for, right, there's, there's for an instance, right, where um, two characters are talking and there's a mention of roasted chestnuts instead of, you know, they look like popcorn, but how they taste very different. Not very little slices of life, right? But they may, that experience, um, uh, so enriching as a reader because you're getting these glimpses into. Uh, that's why I think it's such a nice balance to have a fictionalized narrative, and no doubts about it. Today, every uh, one who's unconcerned with the region but knows something about. Uh, afghanistan and taliban is largely because they've ended up reading the kite runner or a thousand splendid sons at some point of time and it's not as if you know bbc or times of india wasn't reporting it right they were but but it's honestly when stories come closer home in in the forms of people we love or in the form of relationships we all have right and, and i think you no know, because the character is is only 10 years old right and as a child the impression it is so stronger, uh, strongly registered right uh, hence strengthens the book far more than than maybe older character because you're just seeing this i think quite metaphorically almost in terms of like an innocence lost for a region but also from the perspective of a character
1: well yeah i think i mean you got it right i many i mean uh, some of my readers have said that you know your narrative is so fast (laughs) you you started with a 10 year old kid and then you know he grew so fast uh, you know as the novel moves and i guess also uh, one thing is that uh, because the novel started with uh, a childhood memory uh, i've been told that many children are picking up the book to read and you know my Ten-year-old daughter already read, you know, a few days after the book release, and many of our friends' circle have actually grabbed the book to read and with sense of interest. Of course, there are lots of heavy stuff. I wonder what goes into their head when they read through all those things. But I think, uh, I guess, readers, different kinds of readers of any age group can uh, connect with stories in different ways. Even though sometimes we think that uh, this may not be their type of book. But uh, it is not for us to judge. And so as a teacher, when I also often, uh, you know, at one point of time, I taught children's literature. And often when we talk about children's literature, it is not the children who actually judge what should be children's literature. You know, it is often the adult who actually define those terms. And sometimes those terms become quite tricky because it actually... Uh, you know, kind of lose that sense of how people might choose certain aspects of it. So I think, you know, it's for me, a lot of things have gone in. But also, I think the fast paced narrative also, I would say, uh, is is also metaphorical of the kind of transition, which were very fast paced in, uh, you know, as I grew up, I saw lots of things happening in one after the other, just like the incidents that happened, you know, the oilom incident or the Operation Bluebird was quickly succeeded by the kind of factionalism that uh, broke out between the Naga insurgent groups, which caused lots of trauma again, you know, within their own people. And then again, you have lots of other ethnic conflicts. And even today, many of these ethnic conflicts are not yet healed. And uh, I hope to see that, you know, someday uh, different ethnic groups will be looked, able to look beyond their own small worlds and see things objectively and come together to a point of
0: healing that's such a wonderful you know uh thing and and really and i think healing is such is the way to really you know the resolution if i may call it right often we think of resolution first and healing second but but i'm so glad where you said healing because i think that really is is the path to a resolution rather than the other way around, you know. One, uh, and especially, right, because life, is, it changes so fast, right? Because in, in this book, again, um, and because, as I mentioned to you, I was completely unaware of the context till I read the book, right? When when this whole, um, the attack of, from the Sam Rifles outpost happens and there's retaliation and, and so many ordinary people get tortured and executed, uh, shops get ransacked, burnt down. There is so much disillusionment, right? I think the pain that comes from the disillusionment is what is so much more destabilizing de- than than the sort of military, social things that play out and that grief is so personal. So again, thank you so much for mentioning that. Something very nice about children's book, right? And how um, adults often try to be arbiters of what right and it, it, it's so interesting because so many of these books that were initially for instance like all of these fairy tales right that we read as um, to our children were actually very morbid stories for adults like the little prince which which started off for children is something that's revered almost like a philosophical book by adults now
1: <laughs> that's very much true and i think that is where i guess uh... the the power of literature also comes in. And uh, just to uh, mention that, you know, because I have interest in uh, researching, in fact, uh, my research was also on the new writings that were emerging from the northeast of India, especially the English writings. I see a lot of um, kind of genres that have emerged from the region. And my first book, in fact, uh, was more of an academic book, which I researched and uh, part of it is from my PhD thesis. Uh, and the first book's title is Literary Cultures of India's Northeast. And when I investigate and kind of did research and read into literatures from uh, different states of the Northeast, there's so much to actually inform me, even though I'm from that part of the region, and yet you know, I have so much to learn from these writings that has emerged. And literature gives us that opportunity to go into worlds where we have not seen and i'm sure by now you have interviewed lots of different people from different parts of the country quite interesting for you to actually penetrate those worlds through literary worlds
0: that's quite a thought and you know i uh, when i was trying to research uh, once i finished reading the book and i was trying to read up more you know i i came across you know literary cultures of india's northeast right naga writings English. i think and i was actually going to ask you because one of the things that of course i came across was that so much of this literature of course much like uh, the rest uh, of the world again is initially derived from oral traditions right because folk songs long narratives elements of magic and fantasy beliefs, right? Which of course shape our identity and culture as well. What, what is perhaps an interesting anecdote or something that you came across um, while putting your thesis together and consequently the book which, which is sort of registered with you as I don't know, perhaps an anecdote that you like to tell at parties or something that you know, you know that, or, or that, that personally held a lot of meaning for you?
1: Yeah, I I mean, actually, I was (laughs) not quite prepared to talk about the other book. But anyway, I think uh, when we read into literatures from the Northeast, particularly the English writings, um, you see a lot of um, post-colonial angst, again, even against even the state of uh, India. And I think that is important to be listened to. That is where I think there is a lot of uh, uh, writings which are against the state. And the state need not necessarily be against India alone, but it could be against the different states where they belong because of corruption, because of all these kinds of uh, violence that has penetrated the society. Well, at the same time, I think the other important aspect you raised is also that the region is very rich in uh, oral tradition. Oral culture still permeates all lives in one way or the other. This reading culture has not quite caught on in one way even to most of the people. And yes, of course, uh, when we read many of these works, um, a lot of what they write are also drawn from the tradition that they go. Uh, they grew up, uh, you know, being part of that culture. And oral culture gives that uh, impetus uh, of sort to, to let the writers uh, become convenient with being a storyteller. So I also, you know, the, if you read into my story, I, you know, you will be able to identify with the grandmother. Grandmother is the one who actually tells the story. And uh, that gives me a sort of memory of uh, how my real grandmother was, like many other grandmothers and uh, Petrarch's would tell stories about all this enchanted world where uh, all sorts of things happen, you know, the magical realities. And I think we still look for that sort of uh, magic world. I mean, I don't think that, you know, our oral tradition, uh, whether it's the societies of the Northeast or other parts of the country, uh, have died. They, in fact, have been recreated, reimagined. And um, perhaps that is the reason why we see more of myths, uh, you know, selling much more than many other works, literary works, you know. So that's something which is interesting.
0: I, I am sure you're reading my mind because I was just going to say that much like, you know, this, the grandmother in the book is, is such, is you know, she's a community keeper. All of the, and that whole anecdote and that piece around the Japanese soldiers, I'm not getting into details, because I want people to read the book and I am ve- like very consciously um, stirring away from spoilers and, you know, detailed stories. but But I really think that, you know, I think she was my uh, favorite
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I hope people also find her uh, interesting because uh, i think she represents a generation at least that uh, like you correctly put it are memory keepers uh, in a good sense lots of things you know she takes us back even into the second world war right right you mentioned you know through our stories and those can be really fascinating. You know, we can, just like we can read a book and travel back into any part of the world where it is located. You know, storytellers have this, that sense of being able to mesmerize us and with their sense of storytelling and with the kind of performance they actually perform, you know. Storytelling is not just simply reading it like we all do to our children today. You know, we have lost a sense of performance, I think, which we have not quite been able to retain and and yet i think storytelling is not an easy art it is not for anybody also and i guess that's that, that is also something which 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 strongly comes true hopefully
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we, we today live in an era where uh, storytelling is confined to every second pitch deck by uh, a startup saying that, oh, they're doing storytelling. It's it become a buzzword, really. But the beauty and the ethos and the magnitude of storytelling, I think we, uh, and, and I think the grandmother says this very nicely huh, in the story where oh, she says right that people of our generation, you know, now people, uh, we don't care so much about stories because um because of this modern education and learning has taken away the kind of flexibility and histories of personal pride and stories right it's become about knowing what everyone knows and not cherishing so much of what is very unique to you right which is the oral what the oral tradition is about
1: hmm. very true i think you know i mean in that sense i'm quite excited about this this conversation also because this actually keeps on that medium of you know the oral, unlike a kind of a written interview, which you know people say, you know I'm going to interview you through email. You know there's no sense of quite warmth of exchange, but a talk like this gives you a sense of keeping alive that uh, ability to actually engage the reader as well as the one who is actually in conversation. Which so thank you Ayushi for this. <laughs>
0: No, the pleasure is all mine, Leo. And, you know, it's, it's such a, uh, I have thought initially, you know, that I will, I'm going to ask you all these very hard questions on NSCN, and you know, around uh, the context of why uh, the attacks happened, what, what, what happened with the legal recourses, and of course, we've touched on them. Uh, th- this conversation is I think very tonal of the book itself right because you've picked up the Oinam incident as an inflection point it's not a you you know it's one of the slightly like, lesser known inflection points as per my understanding of the Naga movement I think you very nicely told us at the beginning that that it's something that's even under discussed or under represented within fabric of people who've experienced or lived these roles right so I am, I'm very, very glad to have this. And I, I think just like, you know, the whole memory keeper and storyteller, really, uh, you know, the response and the reaction that really together creates the story, right? Because, and I think that'd be a reaction. There would always be, you know, tell me one more. Oh, why did this happen? And the, you know, children always question. I does just take. oh, this person has written this novel. So I'm just going to read it as is. And then I'm going to like, you know, move on with life after that. So. so Well, now that I've I've mentioned this in passing, I I have to absolutely ask you um, about the legal um, uh, piece, right? A lot of factual information you've mentioned in your author's note, right, came from a book called The Judgment That Never Came the Army Rule in Northeast India, which is written by Nandita and Sebastian Hongre. And Nandita was actually the lawyer who filed uh, for everyone who listens to the podcast who doesn't know the uh, context was the lawyer who filed the original court case against these atrocities and she was working closely with naga people's movement for human rights and other human rights organizations amnesty uh, international also brought out a report which included eyewitness accounts however all of these are now lost and and there the I think in last year, in 2019, after three decades, after the court petitions were filed, right, that the case was just completely dismissed for lack of evidence, which is shocking because there were 12 volumes into thousands of pages, right? Now, and I think she very, uh, in in your author's note, right, you say who's responsible, right, for the loss of this 12 volume of evidence of human scale, uh, large scale human rights violation, right? Of 30 villages. I mean, that I think uh, before I even started reading the book and now as I speak of it, reading from my notes, I have goosebumps thinking about the fact that human rights were violated for of 30 villages in a district. Thousands of pages of evidence, eyewitness accounts, all lost after decades of court petitions. It's just just heartbreak. I don't know. I don't know if it points of just archival, it points to network of issues that run along with uh, putting forth a case like that also, right? Um, But how did you as an author, you know, um, deal with uh, this when you heard of this? Well,
1: I think it's quite shocking. Uh, I mean, that is much I can say at this point, because, and, uh, you know, a lot of things are lost. I mean, you don't have the 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 charge sheet you don't have anything that you can level against the perpetrators of these injustices and yet at the same time you know a lot of things happen like this uh, in the northeast especially when it comes to the military forces and uh, because of the kind of you know protection they have uh, you know just to name clearly Afspa, uh, Arms Armed Special Forces Part X. You know, you have a lot of things that uh, the armed forces operate with a sense of intimidating the common people, particularly, and the kind of power they wield uh, is something which is not seen in other parts of the country and in the, and the region, in many pockets of the region continue to be highly militarized even today, even as I speak. And, uh, to talk, I mean, just this is just one incident which, which has been brought, and we are not talking only about the kind of lives that are lost but the kind of psychological trauma that has been left behind because of these kind of things the kind of properties the kind of uh, people's attachment to many things you know the land is the identity for people like this uh, you know who who actually grew up thinking about these things being dis- destroyed of their food uh, crops and you know food items is is something which is very traumatic they cannot live with those just saying that i you know it just happened like that and at the same time again you know when we talk about the kind of uh, impact it has something which cannot obviously be recovered even if the court were to judge it will only take into account the kind of loss of property uh, it will not be able to bring about the sense of complete justice in the form of um, delivering. A psychological justice which is not quite possible and i think we, we see this kind of thing continue to happen in other parts of the region too that is why uh, you know the human rights movements organizations are still you know working on people who are affected by this kind of uh, you know military actions the impunity at which they work not just in that part of the region where i come from but also let's say in uh, the middle part of india where it is you know people refer to it as a naxalite region or regions where many organizations are battling to struggle to bring a sense of justice uh, which may not come about but it is i hope with a sense of it is my, with a sense of hope that uh, something would be unveiled to some people as i as they read this book that something happened like this and then, you know, they should not be forgotten of all those.
0: Absolutely. You know, I just was reminded again, and this is one of the lines that I've underlined from the book, right? Is it This line which says that his mind wouldn't stop working and thinking and wondering. He felt he was living between hope and despair. That's uh, unfortunately uh, the state that people have had to live with right? Don't, swinging between hope and despair and dealing with this aftermath of trauma and to actually hear and come across, I don't know, miscarriage of justice or denied justice or even on the basis of something like lost evidence, right? Uh, it, it just absolutely makes one distraught. I think one question, we uh, that I wanted to ask you, right? Uh, much like uh, there's, a, there's this swift movement towards migration right to urban centers so a lot of the youth from have moved on to like a delhi or a mumbai right increasingly for economic opportunities how does that change the fabric um of the community uh that have that has lived through this time especially because uh, you know the nature of power the nature of stories and personal histories that get redistributed with this um, economic migration that we see?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I think this sort of migration, as you mentioned, for economic reason, uh, happened mainly uh, with the turn of the century. Earlier, most people who go outside of the state to study are for educational purposes. You know, let's say it is primarily because of kind of liberalization that has happened in other parts and you know malls are coming up markets are opening up and therefore there are sprouting of opportunities which were not visible in the state again you know well we also see the opportunities outside the state the sorry state of affair also in the states uh, in the region most part of the region and especially state like uh, Manipur and Nagaland is that the higher education is also pathetic. Uh, of course, there is a way to recovery in many sense. Many uh, institutions are coming up, but still it is not at all comparable to others. And this is something which is very unfortunate that uh, young people continues to go, flow out of the country without the intention of coming back. So there is there is always an outflow uh, of capital or you know interest and also in that sense economy is also flowing out from the state actually while well, it should be flowing into the state because when st- children young people go and study elsewhere parents money go out so technically the state money uh, you economically a poor state like Manipur uh, is hurt so much doubly hurt when uh, you know young people move away uh, there is no sense of, uh, you know, sending back that uh, money which has been spent outside, and this this continues to be a problem which uh, I don't know if there is an immediate solution to it. But uh, surprisingly, you know, this 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 pandemic um, has created a sort of uh, reverse migration, <laughs> as you've seen elsewhere also. And it is most likely that many young people may not come back to these metros, except for their studies. Uh, and I see that many people are actually able to look into ways to build business on their own, which I hope will, because that will actually invest uh, the, the kind of energy and also ideas in, the, in, a, in a state like Manipur, where the, the, the influx earlier was so much, so huge. Even in a state like and in a capital like Delhi, now you you have many pockets of Delhi have been emptied because some people have gone to their home states. But again, there is also a possibility of a uh, huge underemployment or uh, you know unemployment rising because uh, job opportunities are very less, and the government is not likely to be able to create jobs for people who may be talented. And along with this, which is the unfortunate thing that has happened in many parts of this region is also the corruption that has come not just in political or theoretical corruption, but also in other forms of corruption that has come and crept into and uh, has destroyed the fabric of the society, which I don't know, there is no clear answer, immediate answer to some of these problems. But I can I just point out to the last line of which you read out um, this idea of uh, being uh, living in between hope and despair. Um, that actually is talks a lot about the the current political, also the political situation of the Nagas when it comes to uh, you know the, the conflict with uh, India, and also because you know somehow or the other. The Naga problem seems to be a persistent torn in the flesh for uh, the great nation-state India. We see that, you know, because the NSCN is also from the beginning referred to as the mother of all insurgent movements in the Northeast, the government certainly is trying so hard to uh, arrive at a solution, but uh, blames have always been from both sides. And uh, it is very unfortunate that, you know, the wait keeps going on. And so I think the title of the book is one way hinged on that uh, sense of waiting for a solution uh, for the Naga problem, because uh, no one is getting any better out of waiting, out of delaying this thing, not just the Naga people or other people groups, but also the Indian state is also not able to move forward because uh, not just the Naga people, but many people groups who are struggling to to find a solution a viable solution sort of uh, with the indian state is not able to find a suitable path towards uh, kind coming to a formal table where they can uh, you know come to a conclusion to the kind of movement that has been in the region for a long time and i think uh, the the indian state rightly sees that uh, a solution with the naga people is crucial for other states also to follow suit uh, because they still can continues to wield a kind of respect and power over other kind of sub movements that are still in the region
0: thank you Veo. i think this has been uh, so enlightening right and and i mean reading uh waiting for the dust to settle was in itself such an education and hearing was has really helped me understand a lot of the narrative of the political history and this very, very lucid and raw narration of real events and sufferings that people have gone through. To end sort of today's conversation on a a happy note, I want to ask what are some books about India in general or written by Indian authors that you would want to recommend uh, to people listening in today?
1: Well, I think there are lots of titles, I, you know. I mean, Indian writing in English is so huge uh, component that we cannot really imagine the kind of things. You know, you look at the whole of South Asia; it is mostly uh, Indian writers who are filling up the spaces. But let me just, for the sake of uh, you know this conversation, uh, point to you know some writers from the the region, which is the Northeast region, which we are in conversation. Which I think uh, some some of my Uh, My favorite writers are uh, Mamang Dai, who is from Arunachal Pradesh. Uh, And uh, her book, especially The Black Hill, uh, is quite intriguing because it it is a historical novel that takes us back into the 19th century and kind of things that happened in that colonial period. Uh, And of course, uh, Istirin Kire is one of my favorite, even though she is a fellow naga but uh, she's won uh, awards also. But I like the way she uh, synthesized uh, the the oral tradition into the way that we uh, read today as fiction. So, Son of the Thundercloud, I would say, is one very short book, and but very enlightening and very intriguing for most people to read. And Shilong uh, has brought out lots of writers who are uh, making a mark in not just the region, but also in other parts. You know, there are lots of good poetry coming out from the region. An- Anjum Hasan, of course, herself, not just a fiction writer, but also a good poet. And we have a young writer like uh, Janice Parayat, uh, who is now a well-recognized name in the region. So lots of writings are actually emerging from the region. Assam, in fact, has lots of other, not just translations, but also those who are originally writing in English now.
0: That's a great list. And I, I absolutely want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh, putting this. For so many recommendations. You it, it's wonderful.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in to listen to this episode. Please go ahead and grab a copy of Waiting for the Dust to Settle. It's not... A book that, you know, will get written again, uh, you know, where in, in any time uh, near or soon, you know, about a particular state of historical affairs. It has so much resonance with human suffering, right? But also, as we very nicely told us during this interview, about healing and coming together and, and a lot of humanizing, whatever we deal with as people, the book is available on Amazon. It's available on Flip it's available on the speaking tiger website as well as independent bookstores so make sure that you go grab a coffee and you know discover uh, through a very uh interesting about operation bluebird and and all the atrocities um but in a manner that that you're able to experience the region to yourself just as i was able to experience it the, you know, spaces of the protagonists and the family in the hilly areas of Manipur during this period. Once again, uh, Veo, thank you so much for doing this with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Ayushi. It's been a pleasure for me too.
0: Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcast.